Playwright, a podcast about creating and sharing new ways to play. My name is Ryan Heyman, also known as H. And I'm Ryan Quintel, also known as Q. Ryan, I garnered from one of your recent tweets that mm-hmm. you are either knee-deep or now recently completed dead cells. Uh, I'm getting very close. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I've gotten to the castle. I can get there fairly reliably these days. But man, it's still that area still kind of kicks my butt a little bit. I was just saying, so I am actually in a very similar position. I'm getting to the castle spoilers for anybody that is playing Dead Cell. I don't know how big of a spoiler that is, but for the life of me, there just seems to always be some room with some combination, some horribly toxic combination of guys that end up kicking my butt. Yeah, well, the thing is that they've got the the mage fellows who shoot through walls. And so that encourages you to get to them quickly. But oftentimes then you find yourself surrounded by a couple of those, uh, those long spear guys or the tornado sword fellows. It, it, you find yourself in real ugly spots really quickly. So have you found yourself gravitating towards specific weapons in this whole thing? Like, is there a loadout that once you get it, you're like, Oh, it's going to be a good one just get turrets as soon as I can and uh, buy nothing but purples when you get the upgrade scrolls and you're good to go. Because towards the end of the run, you'll start getting colorless weapons. And so that will be upgraded by the most powered up skill. Mm. And so, yeah, as long as you just dump everything in a purple, then uh, you're going to be happy sailing. You know, it's funny that you say that because I think I have also, unless this is like the known tactic and I just didn't know about it because I don't talk to anybody about it, but I think I've had my best runs with purples as well. I actually specifically have a lot of luck when I get an ice bow. I think I, I, the mm, rhythm yeah. of the freezing and then, um, ideally I get like a good, um, maybe crossbow or something heavy crossbow that kind of shoots multiple arrows at the same time that one, mm-hmm. two freeze arrows. And then you can lay down turrets or I like a good ice grenade too. I just, I basically play the game like I'm sub zero. I just want to go around freezing everybody. <laughs> it is very nice to be able to freeze people. Uh, I once found a very powerful, it's like a, it's like an aura around you, a circle around your character of what looks like knives or something where mm. just anything that would get close to you would just be obliterated. It had a long recharge time, but it was, uh, it was really nice to just be able to basically stand in anyone's face and just watch them get torn to shreds. <laughs> That's great. I, I'm still so far away. So I went for essentially getting the the health flask stuff as soon as I could. Maybe mm-hmm. that wasn't the right thing to do, but... I think that's a good move. Okay, because I am at the like three health flask thing and I keep looking at other things going, am I neglecting like large portions of this game just to... To dump There's it, not th- that many super useful upgrades from what I've found so far, actually. Yeah, I'd love to get the gold reserves and the lightning, uh, not the lightning, the recycling up one more time, just mm-hmm. because it's just get that economy going faster. Things are getting pretty expensive as I get into those later levels. Yeah, I've I I, I just got the fourth health uh health flask upgrade, Ooh. 
Uh, you do get some really nice um, upgrades once you beat bosses, and you can get kind of like a one-time, uh, just dump whatever you got from the boss specifically into these very special metrics that you can't reach any other way. Uh, and so that's that's nice. It has more of a, a permanent uh, feeling to it. But uh, yeah, overall, I think the most important thing is just prioritize getting the runes. And then once you got the runes, then you're good to go. Fair enough. Well, we're both entrenched, and now we have to come take a break from our dead cells to pitch new video games. Yuck. That's right. Well, it's your turn to go first today, so what are you going to bring us? After just saying yuck, I can't possibly present anything, right? Okay, so my pitch this week is a Call of Duty mode that spans every era of Call of Duty, so two massive teams... Think of it uh, as uh, Battlefield sort of level teams, maybe 64, 32 versus 32. Or, you know what, we'll, yeah, Battle Royale exists. We can go 50 versus 50, 100 versus 100 even. Um, you have essentially pools of troops that you can deploy, um, and each team has troops from the major Call of Duty engagements. We'll call it World War One, Two. Uh, Black Ops. Have they ever done a World War One game? Maybe they haven't. Uh, okay, well, we'll do. We'll even go that far back. We'll do World War One, two, Black Ops, and you know, Modern Warfare, Black Ops, and then of course all the crazy wall running, Advanced Warfare stuff. And essentially, you get to spawn as any kind of troop that you want, so long as that pool still has troops in it. So essentially, the people who are obviously from the later eras have a huge, huge advantage, but losing them early in the match could mean mm. that you're trying to fight your way through the end of a match with only World War II weaponry and troops, um, which would not be very fun. Maybe a, uh, a World War II character doesn't know how to drive one of the modern vehicles or something like that. They just can't get in those things or they can't heal someone in the way that a more modern person can. Um, so that's the basic pitch. I'm sure we can refine it and make it much better. All right, starting the clock. So this might be a stupid question, but is there one pool for each team or are, is there a shared pool that, uh, you know, the people who die early, obviously the worst players get to draw from the pool first and uh, almost like that uh, that new Smash Bros mode where as soon as you play as a character, they're eliminated for everyone to use. So what are you envisioning? Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't considered it, but I like the idea giving people only a single pool to draw from. And then obviously I, I, I want to uh, figure out a way, maybe I don't have to avoid making the match just feel gradually slower and worse and like mm -hmm. somebody being able to tap into an advanced warfare fighter when one of those could really turn the tide uh, for somebody. Uh, so yeah. maybe it's two separate pools, but you're going to have to either communicate with your team of like, okay, let's not go ham right away. Let's not take these initial great troops because we think that the, the enemy is going to be harder to defeat later on. You know, it'd be interesting if we can even kind of extend outside of the Call of Duty, you know, whatever they've done previously, and kind of open this up to warriors throughout all of history, almost like a For Honor type thing, where oh. you have the majority of your players are going to be like the World War II, World War One, Vietnam War, uh, Iraq War, Iraq War II, uh, all of these like wars that we're very familiar with. 
Yeah, but you know, every once in a while you'll get like a like a knight or somebody armed with a crossbow or like a a ninja or something. I don't know. <laughs> Just you know, warriors throughout history. Just like massively different fighting styles or whatever. Yeah. And then just in these different maps with uh, portions of the map that are more wide open and portions of the map that are kind of winding corridors, you might find that uh, certain types have advantages and disadvantages. And then maybe you just kind of like randomly respawn as a specific class, but from a random point in history. I think that's cool, especially if you did the For Honor job of kind of balancing them against each other. I don't know necessarily how you could have, I'm trying to think in my head how to have something that doesn't necessarily end up with you having the battlefront hero problem of like, hey, this is just going to be a complete, you know, somebody can totally floor a bunch of troops at once because I do think that you want the death to matter. You want the, the attrition to feel significant in a way of like, oh, we really bungled this. The easy answer is just to balance them all, which right. you can do. That's not an unrealistic ask. You know, just give the warriors without the ability to wall run and use jetpack some other thing that makes up for it. That's more kind of historically accurate. And, uh, you know, fine. That's that's fine. <laughs> but that's kind of an easy solution. You know, I it is interesting to have like a sense of, the advancement of war and technology over the ages. Yeah. But um, I think the the thing that would be uninteresting to me as a player is if I spawn as somebody who is objectively worse than everyone else to just say like, okay, well, it's not even really worth me playing right now. Like I'm just going to walk in there and get killed and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to have to wait till I respond to somebody else. I might as well just run off the building. Okay. So you just actually put my mind in a totally different space which is what if you tie some, forget about the Call of Duty license, what if you go a little bit more Age of Empires on it and uh, and you get into uh, maybe there's a uh, some sort of metagame or as you advance into enemy territory or as you claim certain spots on the map, you're able to advance an era. And so the oh, okay. teams that are advancing through the era then start spawning the new, more powerful troops. And, and suddenly you become less worried about destroying the enemy team and more worried about advancing your own team. Yeah, you know, something like a, um, you're not pushing a crate, but like in uh, Team Fortress 2 in Overwatch where you can like accompany a cart that's moving towards the other player's side or like in uh, the, the good Star Wars Battlefront games where you could capture control points and, uh, you know, you have in that game or in those games, it would reward you with more troops as the match went on. Um, but yeah, we could always, um, we could always kind of tap into that. And as you control more control points, then you progress through history. Yeah. Uh, it, okay. That's cool. So like if you control well, whatever, like three of the five points, then mm-hmm. you just are watching like decades tick up <laughs> and maybe and maybe it's not just totally the sort of age of empire. Oh, you've entered the Bronze Age. Now everything is automatically better. But as the decades start going, just like new guns start becoming available. And like so that it actually blurs the eras together. You're like, OK, well, these are the World War Two guys, but they have body armor because they like we they got enough decades so that they've got that tech 
but you know they don't fully have the you know call in the chopper and and run an assault tech i think if uh as far as owning control points that feels like a very binary thing uh and so you know this this kind of gradient evolution is cool but the difficulty i see is that there's kind of an unknown amount of time in between these engagements in between controlling control points and so you know, if it's a gradient thing and your character is slowly evolving, then it might take longer than expected to catch the new control point, or it might happen very quickly. And then suddenly the gradient needs to catch up. Um, I, I think it makes sense to just kind of automatically get period appropriate weapon for whatever age you are advancing into. But again, I, I, I'm not married to these ideas and so we can we can certainly explore yeah okay so let's say that it is a full takeover what what could we do to you know solve the classic problem of the rich get richer like a team that is just dominating yeah this happens so often like obviously a team that's doing super well is going to advance up the ages super quickly how can we tilt it a little back in favor of the the losing guy yeah you know Maybe that's not a huge problem because in the original Star Wars Battlefront games, that is kind of the way it worked that as you as you lose troops, like you have fewer on the field and your numbers always go down when you get on a worse foot. And so you really are trying to fight back quickly and it it really heavily incentivizes you to go and get that next control point and not just focus on killing people because ultimately it was a numbers race in battlefront but you know the those control points gave you so much of an advantage that it really pushed you forward and if you don't have that push forward then uh you know people might just resort to camping and and picking people off and you know i just like to keep a little bit more momentum going but i see what you're saying and i thought about that too and i'm not really sure we'd have to go into play testing <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah all right well my last tweak on this is maybe some version of the the battlefield levolution sort of stuff where either you encourage yeah. uh decade or sort of time period parity between the teams by like only vehicles from an era will only spawn when both teams are in a particular time period or um, vehicles always spawn from the most advanced time period that one of the teams are on. And that way, maybe you're weak with your troops out the gate, but you actually have some really great jet fighter pilots on your team. Um, so you can kind of claw your way back to victory uh, or, or up through the ages rather by uh, just being very good at vehicular combat that the other team actually earned for you. I think it would be interesting if the level was divided into zones, like five zones, each of which has a control point in it. And as you capture that control point, then all of the zones that are owned by your team are on the same, uh, oh, like time the period. Same period of time. And then all the zones owned by the opponent's team are in their period of time. And so, you know, you can walk just steps as you cross zones from a World War II battlefield into like a medieval battlefield with cool. trebuchets and and uh, castle remnants and stuff. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want something that would make like a tremendous amount of difference, but maybe just giving them some sort of a home field advantage somehow, maybe to... 
make it harder to push into enemy territory because their weapons and their characters are specifically designed to navigate the challenges of that period of time. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think if you're losing, but you get to like one of these more modern areas, if there is a turret or something, I feel like if it, you know, it's better and more automatic, you should still be able to benefit from at least that. It doesn't really require like a deep proficiency. Yeah. Well, anyways, we're out of time. Let's close the book there and give it a name. What are we going to call this one? In my original pitch of all these players coming back from different time periods, I was going to go the route of playing off Call of Duty zombies and maybe do like Call of Duty undead attrition. But we've taken it a bit of in a different direction. Maybe we do like Call of Duty timeless warfare. (laughs) Timeless warfare. That's right, the never-ending story of war. <laughs> or maybe we do, uh, yeah, yeah, Call of Duty Paradox Warfare or something like that. Oh, jeez. That sounds like an actual Call of Duty game that would exist. Yeah, so it does. I guess it's on brand. <laughs> if you like it, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, you've had some titles like that. I will, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm going to seize no, it. I don't mind. <laughs> My turn today. What I want to do is... Uh, create a third-person shooter with Smash Bros-like mechanics where as you shoot people, they become lighter and you can uh, you can more easily ring them out, uh, you know, get them, knock them off of the stage. And that's ultimately, you know, shooting them isn't going to kill them. It is purely the, the force of heavy, heavy third-person shooter hits that uh, send people flying. And so... Yeah, I'm uh, basically just pitching a uh, 3D Smash Bros. projectile-only based game. So, uh, we'll start the clock. I like this, and I could see um, them doing this with like a crazy mode in Splatoon as well. Yeah. What does the arena look like in your mind? We're, we're doing a lot of shooting today, by the way. <laughs> I know, I was just thinking about that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I like the idea of, is this kind of one of those smash modes where there's just enemy after enemy coming at you. I mean, I know it's not smash in theory, but in spirit. Yeah, sure. I mean, I was thinking it makes a lot of sense as like a multiplayer thing, but you can certainly throw a horde mode in there as well. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I I think that ultimately you'd have primary weapons that just do chip damage and that erase the enemy's percentage or however we choose to demonstrate it here. And then you've got maybe your heavy hitting weapons, the ones that you can use to, to really get some, uh, some punch behind it and, uh, just try to knock people either off of the stage into the wide open sky or through very specific holes in the surroundings that, um, you'd have to aim very carefully and get them to fly through. But when they're at a high enough percentage, then you can really bounce them around the room and such. I kind of like the idea of portions of the off the map stage feeling like a ski ball table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then kind of having the, uh, the feeling of, Hey, I can, I can try and aim you when I knock you off to getting into a particular point zone or something. So trying to think of the scale of this, I would want something that is small enough to where ring outs can reasonably happen, but not too small. You know, because as a um, trying to balance these ranged weapons, 
I don't want everyone to be able to shoot each other at every single point during the match. You know, I want some places to hide and to run to and to create a sense of movement. Um, I don't want it to just be like a Mexican standoff type thing. You know, maybe something like maps the size of the maps you used to get on, uh, was it Custom Robo and the GameCube or I don't know, but you know, something manageable with a few buildings or things to hide behind. Um, but still, you know, when somebody finds you, then they can uh, deliver that final wallop. What do you think of trying something or giving a spin here of, I, I assume there's like a, a melee attack along with the gun shooting. Yeah, sure. I kind of like the idea of bringing in the smash concept of just straight up spawning like different types of weapons that that occasionally fall like the idea of a hammer spawning and being able to get control of that is like very Uh, enticing to me here i'd also like to work with explosives whether they're grenades that you can throw and those would obviously be the heavy hitting ones even like a like a remote detonated like i like a motion sensor bomb like you'd get in goldeneye or one that you can you can uh detonate remotely when you see somebody walk onto one of your traps that would be a great way to send people flying as well. <laughs> now you've actually got me down the path of wishing this is like a couple weeks ago, your pitch. I, I almost want to have a uh, a tower defense mode to this where you're like lightning characters so much that when they hit your planned explosives, uh, <laughs> or they, it's like a horde mode. You, you're kind of lightning mm-hmm. characters and as they're trying to get to your base, they explode and go flying off into random directions. So I'm trying to think about how much of a distinction I want between, you know, do I want people to be starting off with a fairly rudimentary arrangement of guns like you would get in a GoldenEye match where you have to find all the useful ones somewhere on the map, you know, old school Quake and Unreal Tournament style, or do we want people to be able to kind of choose a class and then each of them are equipped to handle the entire match and they can find upgrades and such but you know they they come in knowing the class and they can perform as that class specifically i like the idea of having maybe a fortnite-esque level of uh, character sort of customization in that way are you thinking that you'll have like the sort of donkey kong types and the the kirby types if your loadout was entirely dependent on what you find on the floor then really you got to come in with an open mind and you got to be proficient at whatever you pick up, which is kind of fun. It's very Dead Cells-like in that way. Uh, But if you are able to choose your class, that's essentially just like choosing your fighter in Smash Bros and getting good with somebody in particular and specializing and knowing their weapons and knowing how they feel, knowing how heavy they are, and just getting everything that comes with the familiarity. I like the idea of doing something where... I mean, maybe there's both and there's like the the me fighter equivalent of, well, you know, I don't have to choose. I can get both things. But the the idea to me of having a preset cast of characters, knowing their movesets and knowing their timing, especially if they're like melee attacks or Mm -hmm. I don't want to say Soulsian, but certainly have a certain rhythm to them that you can come to expect or they have their own different mechanisms because I imagine throughout this whole time, like you're getting lighter too, right? Yeah. And as you get shot anyways. I like that, you know, so so like circle strafing and like bunny hopping are both totally used tactics in first person shooters. And I love the idea of a bunny hop actually having some sense of you 
losing your connection to gravity as you do it. Uh You're kind of, (laughs) as you get lighter, you're kind of hopping higher and higher around. Yeah. And maybe if you're in the air, then you're vulnerable to getting shot out into the sky and you kind of leave yourself open in that way. So there are lots of ways to potentially get somebody out of it. Maybe it's like a dome that you're in. And as soon as you exit the dome from any direction in these three dimensions, then then you lose. Or you could do the sort of modern cheat of there's the dome, like you just continuously lose health or something as you're outside of it. So the longer you're there, um, the more it sort of goes. And that could actually play into if the arena itself is shrinking or transforming in the way that a Smash Brothers stage does, um, where there's, you know, things to dodge. I love the idea of so many Smash Brothers stages feel switching and dynamic as everything's happening. And to bring that into a shooter, I feel like you don't get a lot of transforming level shooters. That's true. Yeah. The arena combat inside of those, those dynamic stages could feel really good. Yeah. I wonder why we don't get that in shooters other than like Battlefield, which we mentioned already. Yeah. That's it. Hey, maybe we stumbled on something here. Um, (laughs) So in your mind is, is the only mode this kind of, it almost sounds like smash TV to me. This like you're Uh in, in an arena and people are just continuously like climbing over the edge or is there something else that we can do with this format? Like, could you have a platforming level that, uh, that is you're kind of trying to navigate the whole time, almost like the the single player Smash Brothers content. There could be different arenas, each of them having different challenges. And so you'd have one where you have to very carefully navigate the floor, maybe in between, you know, jumping between objects and trying to shoot each other while you do it. But you know, ultimately, I think the uh, the core of the idea could be applied to a lot of different, different uh, setups. Yeah, and I like the idea of a quick, very fast four-player-only four competitive mode where you're able to shoot each other and slowly untether yourselves from gravity until the players go flying off the ground and die in space like it's a, a bad <laughs> Star Trek episode or something. Yeah, well, I love the big dramatic like explosions that you get in Smash Bros whenever somebody gets ring out. You know, the entire side of the screen just lights up as they are, I don't know, obliterated from reality. (laughs) Anyways, let's call that one there. I think we're just about out of time. To give it a name, I guess I'll just call it Shootout because you're trying to shoot people out of the arena. It's not terribly clever, but it'll do. Love it. And then uh, people can argue about what characters they would like to see added to it for years. (laughs) Hey, you got Isabel. Aren't you happy? (sighs) I guess. I don't know. It's fine. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's no Tony Hawk, but I'll take it. Wow. Oh, my God. Did you, Have you talked about that before? Because that's a really good idea. I don't think so. <laughs> Tony Hawk being added to Super Smash would be ridiculous and awesome. Uh, one of my dream Smash characters is I would love to have a, a crazy taxi rep who is in a little taxi the entire time and just kind of driving around and like hitting people with the car and everything. I think we'd be kind of fun. Yeah. We can talk about Smash Bros some other time on a different podcast. Right now, let's move over to our community and see what they have to say. We have a pitch from Emily Hall who says, an undersea horror indie game where the game starts off with a missing girl gone at sea and it's your job to find her. The farther you get into this game, you get closer to finding her and approach a deep sea creep surfish. And she is the main enemy. 
She has turned into a deep sea mermaid. She probably has lured you into her lair to murder you and lay more creepster fish eggs to feed off your dead body. My god. I like it. Let's start the clock. Emily, you are dark. <laughs> I that's, love it. That's good. I like this. We we obviously have, and maybe we've moved away from that in our recent episodes, but we've had for a long time, especially in the early episodes, a lot of uh, horror-themed pitches, and so... It's really nice to be back in this territory again. Yeah, I love it. So this is an indie horror game. <laughs> Missing girl gone off say obviously she's she's the bad guy. What could we do? I think like some of this is going to be an exercise and what sort of plot should unfurl here. Like where do we go looking for her? This makes sense. It's like a Metroidvania type game where you maybe catch a glimpse of this terrible creature at the beginning of the game you kind of get this sense like in uh super metroid how you meet ridley right off the bat and then you're like oh this guy's going to be some sort of badass boss later on and as you continue through the game you encounter these other creatures and these undersea monstrosities and as you defeat them or as you reach maybe power-up stations or whatever you get to uh to be able to survive better underwater you get certain enhancements that make you a little bit more animal like yourself and so by the time you face this final creature hopefully the player has figured out that maybe it was somebody who was just like you and it's just become overblown and nasty and and everything so many of my favorite indie horror games have the sense of you're pushing forward, not even just indie horror games, but horror games in general, you're pushing forward and you really can't turn back. And Mm -hmm. I think the problem with any large body of water is that it feels like you can go many, many places, right? There's a lot of space down there. And so we have to kind of figure out a way to make this what like cavernous in a way, or maybe it starts in a in a wrecked ship, but you find out that it's it's deeper than that, and something where you have to keep pushing forward. I even like the idea of this starting off like you lose the girl in an aquarium or something, just a very <laughs> large aquarium, and that's where you're kind of seeing exhibits, and maybe the aquarium becomes a little more than you thought it was initially, that sort of thing. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> I think if this was like a you know a large body of water or whatever, like it would make sense. You have that natural barrier of not being able to stay underwater too long without having to come back up for air, and so you you can get these power ups along the way, things that allow you to breathe underwater, for instance, that would open up more and more of this map of interconnected tunnels or bodies of water or aquarium tanks or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, traversal, you know, whether you are, you can acquire kind of fish themed powers, maybe like an octopus, you can liquefy to kind of go through tight areas or like a jellyfish, you have a stinging ability that enhances your attack or so. I don't, I don't know. I think that's cool. And now you can bring in some of the subnautica elements of you can maybe even yeah, exactly. catch certain fish and and use those fish to like maybe you you yourself need to stay alive like add in that personal survival aspect of it there's some level of fatigue or there is something that has always scared me as i consider it which is the 
someone being left out in the middle of the ocean and it's not like hunger or a shark that gets them. It's just the exhaustion from having Mm, to stay afloat. And so that sort of thing where like you're constantly trying to more or, or, or kind of get yourself up on something to rest because you can only kind of keep your body in motion for so long. But then as you just defeat more of these enemies or bosses or upgrade chambers or whatever it is, you, you find abilities that, uh, that allow you to overcome these challenges until you feel like you are sufficiently, you know, badass enough to go after this final boss and, uh, see what you can do. What if we also find out something the whole time that like, the fish you've been eating to survive or something is all part of like a particularly cursed or irradiated body of water that is like slowly transforming you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I like if it's tied to upgrades because then it's like a choice that you're making and you get that moment of realization at the end, like, Oh, this creature was just trying to survive and was doing everything she had to do to adapt to the new scenario, this new environment. And ultimately I'm no better because I'm doing the exact same thing. Uh, if it's blameless, I think you have less of that moment of like feeling guilty about it, but, um, you know, just this kind of slow transformation over time, I think is powerful. Yeah. And, and so you get the, you get faced with that sort of, to use the reference that nobody knows, but only me, like the legacy of Cain moment at the end where the canonical ending is either <laughs> you uh, kill the mermaid, the evil <laughs> fish woman, and you absorb the powers and now you yourself are the evil mer woman, or you kind of sacrifice yourself and break the cycle. But of course the cycle will never be broken because the whole thing has to end with like, a hundred people all going to dive to like look for you. And the same thing's going to happen until there's an army of these evil fish creatures. <laughs> yeah. And then we get into a real shape of water type scenario. It's like that book that um, I am legend was based on, or uh, the last man on earth and all those, the Omega man, and all those films, you know, once this new society of monsters is the dominant species on earth, you know, if they can interact with each other and they have intelligence and uh, a will of their own, then, you know, are we the monsters now? Are we the ones that don't belong in the new ecosystem anymore? You know, should we allow them to usurp us? Or don't they have a right to exist just as much as you? And maybe that's that's what you find along the way. Like maybe there's also the the idea of the shopkeeper, or the upgrades, you know, somebody who's helping you. Maybe there's like a Coast Guard person or somebody that's helping you along the way that when they discover you, they kind of turn the light on you and say, do you realize that you you were now the thing? And then you have to fight them, of course, right? It's a, it, it's getting very Resident Evil in my mind, <laughs> the escalation of monstrosity. What a way to end it. Like, do you realize that you are the thing? Right. You're the thing that was being, that they were looking for. Also, another thing about underwater, especially horror stuff that really freaks me out is this sense of, uh, of the darkness of underwater and yeah. not being able to see something and knowing that there are potentially enormous creatures that are just out of arm's reach that you can't see are there because they're moving silently in the water. That's pretty scary. This is a mechanic that I don't know if it's been in a game before, but the way 
I don't mean to pander, but I'm going to, this is more for the audience. The way the human eye works, right, is mm -hmm. uh, it adjusts to darkness you say and pandering light. Because this is going to a primarily human audience. We're like, hey, I've got a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm patronizing, but yes, uh, it's also pandering, right? Us and our uh. human eyes. If you have your eyes closed for just a split second, um, or for a prolonged period of time and you go to open them, they're actually not used to seeing light. And so light is super bright for just, you know, mm -hmm. it could be momentarily, but what if you had a system where you could see just a little tiny smidge, uh, in front of you or get a little bit more vision, that sort of video game vision fiction that ends up in so many games. If you like close your eyes for oh, periods of time. So like you have to keep your eyes closed and like try and either feel your way around. Maybe you get in some HD rumble in there. You, you, know, you get some good haptics or you can kind of just stay still and keep your eyes closed. And that itself is very nerve wracking. And then yeah. when you open your eyes, you get just a momentary flash as to where to go next. It's almost like uh, those games where you play as like a blind protagonist or something. Yeah, that's cool. Let's stop that one there. Uh, we got some interesting threads to keep following, but uh, let's let's stop over ahead and see where this takes us. Let's come up with a name. Uh, Emily did not provide a name, but I'm sure we can come up with something cool. I don't want to be super cliche with like Aqua or something, you know, like you can call it Lady of the Lake, I guess, because that's a uh, like a mythological thing that seems relevant lady of the lake is cool because like you the protagonist end up being the lady of the lake well it's because it's like the king arthur legend as well yeah that was from emily hall thank you for writing in we appreciate that and if you the listener would like to write in as well you can do that at playwrightcast.com slash pitch you can email us playwrightcast at gmail.com or you can tweet us at PlaywrightCast in all of those instances. It is P-L-A-Y-W-R-I-T-E-C-A-S-T. Special thank you to Protodome for the use of our theme song, Hello World, off the album Blue Noise. It's very good, and you should go listen to it. And why don't you take us out today with a small little pitch, something you can fit in your pocket. Fit this in your pocket. <laughs> a Halo game that takes place on an open world Halo ring. All right, uh, we will see you next week. Bye.